After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the peoples, chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, in Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the, children, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Thank you, Gemma. What a story. I fear that we've heard stories like that over and over again in our culture and they've lost some of their oomph. I like saying that word. Um, I feel like they've, they've kind of lost some of their power, but you can imagine hearing that for the first time. Like, it's, it's epic. Like, there's geopolitical things going on amidst this family who've just had a child, um, and the, their story is coming to the fore. Um, we're going to dive into it, but before we do, I just want to recognize that Christmas um, is an awkward time. Who loves Christmas? And it's like the greatest thing on earth. We have a few people, like, it's, it's the most wonderful time. Um, who despises Christmas and everything it stands for? And who's kind of, like, in between? And who, like, it's, like, don't even think about Christmas. Okay, yeah, it's kind of a nothingness. Um, uh, I was thinking about it um, because it happened a little while ago. Um, one of the 
awkward factors of Christmas is that there's the whole gift-giving regime that takes place, and it's really hard to know who you're supposed to give gifts to. Um, so we've just bought a whole bunch of gifts for nieces and nephews uh, and for... Uh, oh, and we do a Kris Kringle, like a, a secret Santa kind of thing in our family, and we've done one in our community group. And that's, that's kind of who we bought it for. Um, but then I'm like, well, do we need to buy it for the other nieces and nephews? And what about your parents? Because um, we're going to be with them on Christmas Day. And what happens if we don't buy your parents a gift and they buy us a gift? And it's just, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And it's just this awkward moment of like, oh. Um, and I don't know about you, but the insecurity flares up inside of me. And I'm like, you only bought me this gift so that you would make me feel bad for not buying you a gift, didn't you? Like, there was nothing nice about this. Like, that's, that's kind of how I feel. Um, and not about your parents, to be clear, just like in general, if someone gives me a gift and I don't give them a gift. Um, and I, uh, I almost feel like this is kind of what's going on in this passage in some ways. God has just given this epic gift to humanity, like this huge, huge gift, pretty expensive, um, kind of thoughtful. Like he's clearly put a lot of effort into this gift, um, prepared ahead of time, um, nicely wrapped, like a really good gift in human flesh, that's what I mean, wrapped, um, a really good gift in, uh, that has been given to humanity, and Israel is like, mm-hmm, um, like there's not really room um, and there's no gift to be given back, and there's this awkward moment of like, hey, the people of God weren't really prepared for this, were they? Like there's, you know, they've had, had hundreds of years of prophesying, and, um, and here they are, and you can imagine the angels kind of looking at each other, being like, awkward, like, <laughs> this, is, this is tough to, tough to view. Um, and then along come these mysterious figures from the east. This is the only time that they appear in the Bible. Um, they're not even recorded in the other Gospels. The Magi from the east appear on the scene, and we're left wondering, who are these Magis? Are they uh, astrologers? Are they sorcerers? Um, they're almost certainly from a pagan religion. Um, they're, they're not Jewish. They don't follow the Jewish God, is the impression that we get. Um, and they come along and they save the day, in a sense. They come along and Israel failed to give gifts. Um, but these Gentiles from far away appear on the scene and they worship the king. A um, uh, little thing about the Magi, some translations call them kings, um, some translations call them wise men. Um, the Greek term magoi, it, it, it doesn't have to be exclusively male, so there's every reason to believe that there were probably females in the midst. The Eastern Orthodox Church says that there were 12. The Western Church says that there were three. Uh, we really have no idea who these people were, other than a band of people, probably quite a few, probably a caravan of people, were waiting. They were waiting for, for God to dwell amongst humanity. And the sign that they knew would tell them that this had taken place would be a star would appear. Um, the celestial beings that for time immemorial have foretold their future. They, they've been watching 
the stars. Uh, And they've seen in the stars a future Messiah. And they've studied the Hebrew texts better than a lot of the Hebrew scholars of the time. Um, They've looked at what we would now call the the Old Testament. They've read it, and they understand that a king is to be born. Um, And so, they see this star, and they begin the trek to Bethlehem. And when they arrive, when they finally get to Jesus by a bit of a roundabout route, they offer gifts, um, gold, frankincense and myrrh. They bow down before this baby, before this child, this incarnate God. The word incarnation, it literally means deity in flesh, uh, deity in physical form. Uh, it's, It's a scandalous idea that God would become human, frail, weak, prone to be broken. Uh, and, and they see this. They see it and they bow down and they worship. And I don't know if it was prophetic, but a lot of, histor- history, uh, a lot of the history of the church suggests that these gifts had meaning. So gold was to represent Jesus' kingship. Frankincense, uh, a, a, a spice used in the temple, Uh, for his priesthood, myrrh, a burial spice. Um, And it's as though these magoi, these men and women who who knew of the birth of God had been waiting to come and worship. And so they do. They travel from afar and they bow down before the creator and the sustainer. Uh, It's quite common, I think, in churches and really healthy at this time of year for us to remind ourselves that Christmas uh, is more than about, uh, it's more than about the tinsel and the wrapping paper and the tree and the decorations and the food and um, there's so much more to it. Um, And so over the next four weeks, the time of Advent is a time of preparation. And so let me add my voice to that and say, uh, Advent is a time of worship, isn't it? Um, Advent is a time to recognize this God King. Um, Advent is a time to recognize the, uh, the gift that we've received and, dare I say it, to give back. Uh, not that God needs anything, um, but giving back in a sense of worship. We said last week that humans are inherently worshiping creatures, that is, we ascribe worth to things. Um, and I think that's true. Um, and so Christmas is a really profound time to think about, well, where, where do we put our worth? Uh, where do we put our worship? Um, Lentz has some really beautiful ideas. Talk to her after at the pub about how we can actually, as a church, buy ethically over Christmas. Sorry, you look surprised, but <laughs> I'm like, I know where it's going. No worry. <laughs> like, you said this to me um, about how we as a church can buy ethically um, rather than feeding into the consumer's drive, the rat race that feeds our society. Um, but alongside gift giving and being with family and friends and all of the beauty of Christmas, um, I hope that over this 
little Advent season, we can think of Christmas as a time of worship, um, as a time of worshiping that which is worthy of worship, yeah? Um, but Advent isn't just about worship. There is a heaviness to Advent, and that's where we're, we're going to start tracking now, um, because the scene of worship with the Magi very quickly takes an horrific left-hand turn, um, and it's really quite a dramatic scene. It's the type of horror that, understandably, I think we kind of wipe away from our collective, na- n- collective nativity conscience and we ignore this part of the nativity. But I just think it's so important because in many ways, King Herod is the foil to the nativity. Um, King Herod is the foil to the incarnation, I might say. Um, God becomes a child as this grotesque, tyrannical ruler slaughters children. Um, God gives up his power as a vicious dictator murders in order to shore up his power. Um, God gives, Herod takes. God extends the arm of inclusion and Herod flexes his dictatorial might. And in some senses, you get the impression that Herod is the epitome of so many of our worldly structures of power. And they do what kings so often do best, uh, and that is commit atrocities in the sake of retaining some semblance of power for themselves. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping, and great mourning. Herod has decimated families across Bethlehem because he understood that another king, a better king, was on the horizon. Um, and so he kills these, these males who are under two because he's so scared that he would lose his authority. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And as these weeping voices fill the air of Bethlehem, this young family Mary, Joseph, and their newborn child, Jesus, they flee. They flee this tyrannical ruler. They take what few possessions they could carry on their body, and they run. Uh, This is Emmanuel. This is what it means to have God with us. They flee their land. They flee their country. You can imagine Mary's mother weeping. Mary needs her family support around her. Joseph needs his family support around her. There is no welfare state, but they take what they can carry and they run. Knowing that to stop could cost them 
the life of their child. Um, and in doing so, this holy family, they, uh, they take their place amongst the long history of refugees of humanity. This is Emmanuel. This is what it means to have God in our midst. In desperation, perhaps they sell the frankincense that they were given. They need to eat on the road. Uh, Perhaps they give the gold away in exchange for safe passage through a barren terrain. The myrrh couldn't have lasted much longer um, as they hope to get to safety. This is Emmanuel. Um, This is God the outcast. Um, This is God the destitute. This is God on the run. Um, This is God the refugee. Um, And it just got political. Um, I want to show you a video um, because I hope in these voices you will hear something of Emmanuel. Um, You will hear something of God. It's a video uh, filmed by the ABC in a series. It's a phenomenal series called You Can't Ask That. Um, And this is a series where asylum seekers and refugees just get asked questions and they're asked to answer them as honestly as they can. There is something scandalous about the idea that God would have to run. Um, And yet, we've seen right through Hebrews that we have a God who stands in solidarity with us. Uh, We have a God who understands what it means to suffer. And so, as you hear these voices, I want you to think of Mary and of Joseph and of Jesus. Um, Think of the nativity. Think of the scandal of the incarnation and how weighty it is that God is with us. I find it mind-boggling that God, the creator, the sustainer, the one who spoke the universe into existence, would step down into human form. I I can understand God loving humanity. I can understand, like, cognitively, I can understand God desiring to save humanity, Um, Like, cognitively, I I can give assent to those ideas. The idea that my God would step down and be treated the way that Jesus was treated blows my mind. The idea that anyone made in the image of that God could be treated in this way blows my mind. And yet here we are uh, in the 21st century. Uh, We've said it before and we'll say it again. The gospel is inherently political uh, because the gospel demands that all people have worth. Uh, And so in Advent, it's a season of worship of God 
But at the same time, Advent is a season of weeping. Um, It's a season of looking at the state of our world and standing in solidarity alongside those who are on the margins. Isaiah foretells of a Messiah who is a man of sorrows. We heard in Hebrews over and over again, as I said, uh, that we have a high priest who has suffered and stands in solidarity alongside us. So God steps down onto earth. God experiences life as an outcast on the margins right throughout. Um, Advent is a season of worship. It's also a season of weeping. Um, But for all of the 2,000-year history of the church, Advent has also been understood as a season of waiting. Um, There you go. There's your three-point W sermon. Um, We weep, we worship, and we wait. Uh, If you take a look and scan your eyes through what Gemma read for us earlier, you'll see that so much of it is longing for the fulfillment of prophecies. Uh, it's, It's waiting for these promises to actually come true. Israel was waiting for somebody to rise up and rescue them. Isaiah was waiting for a suffering servant to come and take his place. The people of the East, the Magoi, these wise people, these kings or queens who come and worship, they were waiting for God to step down onto earth. Um, And so Israel, along with the rest of the world, found itself waiting for God to appear, uh, waiting for a savior to arrive. And that too is kind of where we find ourselves in a lot of ways. We find ourselves in a season uh, not knowing where we're heading. Um, Toward justice, toward a new creation, toward a new city, um, and yet we aren't there yet. And we don't know exactly what form that will take. Um, The world is in the throes of such dramatic turbulence. And so we wait. We wait and we work. Uh, We work towards justice. We work towards walking humbly with God. We work towards loving mercy. Um, And we wait with hope. We wait with hope knowing in that first time around, when all of those prophecies were being spoken that one day a Savior would come, that one day God would step down, that one day God would make everything right. Well, that was partially fulfilled. God was faithful to his promises. Um, And now we have a cloud of witnesses, what we saw in Hebrews, a cloud of witnesses who point to the reality that those promises are fulfilled. And now we find ourselves in a season of waiting again. And we wait for the king to claim the throne again. We wait for a new city to be ushered in, 
a city which flows with the river. And on either side of the river, this is pictured in Revelation, uh, the trees of life. Uh, And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Um, And across the plains of the new creation are people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne, worshipping. And there is no longer any weeping because the wait is over. And so Advent is a season when we sit in this complexity. Um, And for four weeks in the lead up to Christmas, we say, wow, this is really messed up. (laughs) And yet here we are. Um, We wait faithfully. Nathan is going to come up and sing another song for us now. Um, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, It's a carol? I don't know what you'd call it. But the lines in the chorus say, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And I hope that the lyrics to this song capture something of that, that weeping, of that waiting, and of that worshiping, because the words declare rejoice now, rejoice, because Emmanuel, God with us, will come. It's a present rejoicing for a future reality. So I invite you just to sit and hear these lyrics. Let them wash over you and appreciate the fact that we can rejoice because we do have good promises.
God for his goodness. Um, there's so much uh, in Advent to dive into, um, whether it's the weeping or the, uh, the worshipping or the waiting. Um, uh, the theme that we're looking at this year is in solidarity, the fact that God is with us, that we're with each other, that Advent is a time to remember how we stand together. Um, so I encourage you, as you head off to the pub now, um, spend some time thinking about, okay, well, how do we as a community stand in solidarity with one another, with those in our world? Um, grab Steph or others, if you have ideas about how we can do Christmas justly, um, we'd love to get that conversation going. Let me pray for us as we wrap up, and then we'll head. God, we thank you so much that we have a hope we have a hope of a new creation when every tear will be wiped away, when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things will have passed. As we sit in this season of Advent, of remembering your promises, of adoring Jesus, but also of recognizing the pain of our world, the injustices that we see around us, that we feel in our own hearts. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Draw our gaze to that new creation. And over the next few weeks, help us to wait well and to long for your coming. Amen. Amen.